Respect the cock. And tame the cunt. Tame it. Take it on head first with the skills that I will teach you at work and say, Noah, no. you will not control me. Noah, no. you will not take my soul. Noah, no. you will not win this game. Because it is a game, guys. You want to think it's not, huh? You want to think it's not, you go back to the schoolyard and you have that crush on big-titted Mary Jane. Respect the cock. Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 10. It also marks the end of the world, depending on if you work at a movie theater or own a movie theater or like going to the movies. Um, It does indeed. Yeah, so I guess Warner Brothers, the big news of the day is that Warner Brothers has... Of two days ago. Was that two? No, it wasn't two. Oh yeah, two days ago. Two days ago is that Warner Brothers... Announced that they were going to put all of their 2021 movies on directly onto HBO Max, and in theaters only for a month. Only for a month, and then they're going to get pulled to have an exclusive theater engagement. But for the first month of their existence, they will be in playing in theaters simultaneously while they are streaming at home on your television for whatever it costs for HBO Max every month. Uh, so this means that you have Wonder Woman. You have Tom and Jerry. Which I didn't know was a thing. The Many Saints of Newark. Yeah, I'm not sure how... I mean, I just Godzilla versus go Kong. Which is, I guess, weird, but it's also going to be shitty, so who cares? The Conjuring 4? Four? In the Heights? Space Jam, that's a bit, actually kind of a big one. Yeah, LeBron will be sad. The Suicide Squad is, is another big one. Dune, which... I mean, that's still coming out in October. Who's... Who's going to see? Like, who's really going to be like, I'm going to see Dune on HBO Max, assuming there's a vaccine and we're getting back to normal. I mean, I'll watch it on HBO Max and, and go to the movies. Like, yeah, I I'll just... see it in theaters first. And then, like, if I enjoy it, I'll probably watch it on HBO Max. See, that's afterwards. the thing. I don't know how... Oh, and then the, the Matrix 4. Is an... And Sherlock Holmes, which I think are opening on the same day. Sherlock Holmes, the new Downey. Three, yeah. And then, but the most exciting one still for me is, uh, well, besides Dune, but I mean, I was going to see the theater thing, but it was, it was Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, yeah, Which I'm assuming has to be coming out by February. February, yeah, they said. If they uh, want it to be eligible for Oscar. Well, yeah. we were talking about this off air about the Nomad Land thing, and, you know, they're really holding tight to this one week limited engagement and then sticking the theaters in February. But I didn't even know that was happening. How did that even, like, I don't understand why Nomad Land is doing this cloak and dagger shit. Because. They think people are going to go see it in theaters in February, which no, nobody that is no going to a theater. No one's going to die to go see a Francis McDormand movie. Yeah. Um, but like Judas and the Black Messiah, if it releases in the middle of February, 
on HBO Max, like I could see that suddenly shooting to the front runner. So, but there's the thing. I I'm in the, I think the question that you know when you read about this, it's it's kind of like the death of the theater experience. You know what I mean? Like theaters will be relegated to like Marvel movies. Also, and kind did you of know that's it. Really quickly, did you know there's an Elvis movie coming out from Baz Luhrmann? Yes. Oh, that's that's one of the movies. Who's Elvis? I know. Oh, I know this, who it it's is. a Colonel John Parker film. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay, I remember that. Uh, it's Austin Butler. Who the fuck? Who are the fuck that is? He um, was in. He was Tex in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Who was Tex? Uh, the I think he was the one of the three dudes. Oh, yeah, oh the, that kind the, of went to the house. Yeah. Right. The guy that was not Maya Hawk. Yeah. <laughs> Who didn't go in the house? Um, yeah, I, so in terms of like a theater going experience, I'm going to be honest with you, I am enjoying myself not going to theaters. Um, I'm not losing anything. I don't feel like not seeing certain things in theaters. I'm able to connect with things, uh, just as well in my house than I am like spending, you know, two and a half hours at a movie theater. Yeah. I, what's interesting about this though, is looking at Warner Bros. Slate, like interested in Wonder Woman. I'm into the idea of Space Jam and Suicide Squad and Dune. um, And, like, most of these, really? I don't give a shit about most of Warner Bros. movies coming out. It's kind of interesting. Well, it's it's more interesting is, like, what follows suit? Like, does Disney follow suit? Does, you know... Disney may follow suit. 24 follow suit with Hulu or... I think Disney has a little more flexibility where they don't have to announce this, like, a massive dump. Because... They have subscribers. They have subscribers. They have content already like ready to go. If they put Black Widow on it in the like in the spring sometime, I don't think that would affect what happens to the Eternals like at the end of the year. I think they could wait and just be like, if if it looks like things still suck and people aren't going to the movies, they'll be like, here's some Eternals. We don't care. We're gonna buy movie theaters now. Right? Yeah, yeah. We'll buy movie theaters and just show old Disney movies, and people will go. Never release like Eternals in that movie theater, right? I mean, it's for Disney. I think it's less a big deal. I mean, I think the interesting thing Paramount think, and all those guys are probably exactly Universal. Yeah. I mean, what do they do with? I don't know what they, they're still Comcast, NBC, right? So, what do those movie they studios throw it on at, the Peacock? At, oh my god! Could you imagine they release all their films on Peacock? That'd be great, and it's still free. But there's commercials. Like, what does everything. MGM do with like Bond? Well, so that's. I mean. If I'm MGM, I think this is terrible news because I think my hand has been inadvertently forced. Yeah, because now Netflix is going to come back and be like, "Remember, we offered you like what six hundred million or whatever? Mm, we're going to make it four hundred million now." Well, they're going to say we want. They're going to say we want access to some other st- stuff yeah. besides. That's why I think the Apple Plus is more like legitimate because there are another place that's going to want subscribers. Like Netflix doesn't gain anything, I don't think, by having a new Bond movie. Because they already have 150 million people that are subscribed to it. Like, how many more people are going to subs- how many more people are going to subscribe because they have Bond? I think Apple would be willing to put out for it because they need people to give them six dollars a month. Um, and there's only there aren't many people that are give, doing that, which is the same yeah. reason that HBO Max is doing what they're they have, doing because people aren't subscribing I to mean, HBO Max. Apple Plus, I think, has the highest rated movie of the year with like Wolfwalkers. I think is the highest. Like critically rated movie theater, nobody, nobody's seen it. <laughs> it's not, well, it's not out until next, until next. Yeah, so no one, no one but me, is gonna sign up for a free trial and then an accidental month of eight of Apple Plus 
before they realize that they paid for that month and then cancel it two days later. Um, other than like me and people like me, normal people, the people that like gobbled up Trolls World Tour fifty million times at are twenty dollars a piece, putting out for putting cherry. Out, yeah, they're not. They're not. They don't care. They're not watching Boys State. You know what I mean? One night when they're just like you know hard up for something to watch, they're just gonna watch some other shitty show that's on Netflix. Because Apple TV only has a couple of shows. I mean, yeah. Apple TV sucks. but Or Apple Plus or whatever it is. Whatever. I mean, I loved when we did our On the Rocks thing and when I was scrolling through it, I was like, they have nothing. They have nothing on this service. Buy something, for God's sakes. Yeah, I think they have they have peanuts, right? Yeah. But, like, I already have all those on DVD, so yeah. I, don't, I don't need them. And it's like HBO in response is like Studio Ghibli. Yeah, we have Studio Ghibli. And all of it. And even the weird and stuff. all the Looney Tunes. Yeah. I don't know. Everything's getting weird. I think if you like if you like sitting in your house doing stuff, you are, are a winner. It's an introvert's dream. Yeah. It is. I'm not an introvert, but... I feel happy. I was actually very excited that I was not going to have to leave my house to see any of these movies. And aren't you happy now? Because like, we were going to talk about Godzilla vs. Kong. Now you don't actually have to drive your, like, get yourself to a movie theater to see it. Yeah. Like, but the thing, Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters was stupid. It was really, really stupid. It was cool, but it was fucking dumb. So I am perfectly happy. I like the first two. So, but they're fine. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're, they're, also, they're, they're entertaining. Like if I didn't see it in a movie theater, when I showed my son Godzilla on the TV, when it came out on streaming just so he could see monster fights... I didn't say to myself, oh, I wish you could see this on the big screen. He got it. He got the idea. You know, Mothra in the Waterfall is cool. Yeah. Godzilla lighting um, fucking King Ghidorah on fire when he was fucking red. Lava Godzilla is awesome. On a big screen or a little screen. I will say this. There are two movies on this list that I'm probably going to go see in theaters and skip out in the on the... HBO Max experience first. Yeah. You know one is Dune. Sure. What do you think the other one is? Did you mention all of them? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't mention like Mortal Kombat or, Mortal Malign- Kombat. or Malignant. But no, it's one of the ones I mentioned. Tom and Jerry. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> you need to see Chloe Grace. No, I'm, I'll see Sherlock Holmes in theaters. Oh, really? I really enjoyed the first two. So. This is another guy, Richie. Yeah, I'm, joint I or whatever. I'm almost positive. Or did they take it? Take it away from him? Fairly certain it is. Oh no, it's oh, it's Dexter Fletcher. Never mind. Maybe I won't. <laughs> is it still Jude Law? And... Yeah, it's every. It's it's Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, Jared Harris, all hmm. coming back. I kind of forgot that that was the franchise. I mean, because it hasn't been in like seven years. So that's true. You know what helps to forget things, Mario? Cats. Cats. Because <laughs> they. Steal your breath at night? Or they prevent gnomes from stealing your breath at night. Well, one of the things I've what's noticed it, is that... What, what seals the breath in that? It's, it's a... In cat's eye. Is it... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The little um, troll thing and the cat saves yeah, yeah, the girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, Does that Drew Barrymore play in that girl? I don't remember. I remember I liked that movie. We'll do a special cat's eye bonus episode. That's one of those anthology horror movies. Did also, you... HBO Max. If you get a bunch of money from this, fucking redo Tales from the Crypt, you cunts. <laughs> That's why they're doing it. Just to throw $500 million an episode at Robert Zemeckis. The Crypt Keeper is now the new CEO of HBO. (laughs) You just don't know it. I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I'm going to appreciate that beer. All right, so this is a beer by a friend of ours. Oh, I've had this before. Fat Orange Cat. Mario, oh, I, I, I dislike this beer. All cats are gray in the dark, love the can. What the fuck is a white stout? Oh, having had this beer before, it's a bad thing. But what is it? Um, it tastes like white chocolate. I, I mean, I, I, I hope they've improved it. Mario, the idea... I love Fat Orange Cat, but... Uh, this can this is, is beautiful. One, it's a beautiful can. But this, if I remember right, is one of my least favorite beers of all time. But what, I don't understand what makes it a white stout. Like, what do they do to it to white it? Well, it kind of smells like green beans, right? Doesn't it? It, it smells, smells like, like a canned, casserole. Yeah. Like canned green beans. Yeah, let's do this. I think it's still going to taste bad. It's less bad out of the can. Well, it tastes like an espresso taste. That's a lot less bad. This used to be really bad. It used to be really... It used to be like an acidic stout. And I've only had this beer actually out of the tap. Because Fat Orange Cat, uh, you would pay $5. You would get a a glass to take home with you and mm. you get four tokens and you get four samplings of five ounces each so basically you get 20 ounces of beer for five dollars and a glass i'm gonna be honest with you i like that i i like this out of the can but this tastes, out of the tap it tastes it has it's too aerated I this think. tastes like a chocolate covered coffee bean yeah it does yeah out of the can it does taste like that that is fucking good with like a like a slight um anise finish mm. yeah like a like a yeah a hard spice there at the end yeah it's 7.2. This is so much better out of a can. So it says white stout with natural flavors. There's no indication of what those other natural a, flavors this are. This is the only white stout I've ever heard of in my life. So this is a weird beer. It's No. no. Uh, Fat Orange Cat is North Haven, Connecticut. It um, is not North part of Haven, the, Connecticut. It where is, is it? East Hampton. East Hampton. They brew out of the North 12% Beerics. collective. Yeah. yeah. Um, in East. Well, do they brew of 12% now? Yeah. They used to brew out Beerics in um, no, East Haven. Okay. Uh, that's what I said to myself when I saw it. I was like, that's weird. And that's we're doing weird. weird, and White Stout is... <laughs> this is so much... I, 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 this is one. This is the first beer I ever had for that Fat Orange Cat um, at their brewery. Beautiful brewery, oh. by the way, if you read the chance. That's uh, really, and really I had good. that, and I was like, this is terrible, because it was terrible, but now it's it's tremendous. And it's only 15 bucks. Like, I mean, just for like a... That's how much the Imperial Stout Trooper was. For four? For four. And you get... Smaller can. And you get uh, 16 more. You get a full pint more Hmm. from here. Okay, good. Beers. We drank the beer. Good. Good beer. (laughs) It was actually... I remember it being a... I remember I did not... I mean, I think by this point I was pretty buzzed in the conversation. Once Mm. again, this is is cut up. We're recording part of this the week after because of last week's episode being interesting. Um... But I hated that beer on said, draft, yeah. and but I still. I, I'm a little I'm scared. To, so I had two left when I left that night, and then um, I'm a little scared to drink it at my house because because the kids. No, no, because I don't want it to be bad. Like oh. I don't. It was really good in context. No, like, it's, so I'm not. I'm 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 one of these people that worries that like beer is often sometimes affected by like other beers. So before we did. The episode last week, we had already had a couple of beers. The Imperial Stout Trooper Twenty Twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it does. I think it's. I think it's a. It's. It's definitely not a drinker, but mm. it's like a. If it's it's a snowy night beer for sure. I don't like snowy nights. Well, then, there's no such thing as a snowy night beer. Well, they have a beer. I only I mean, drink my own 
anger and frustration on stuff like that. Well, then that'll be a good one to drink your anger I and frustration. You know what's funny, Mario, that you just said, we just said anger and frustration. That, I think, is a perfect motherfucking segue into our first movie this week. Is it Happiest Season? It that, is Happiest Season. Okay, good. I just woke up thinking about going home with you and got very excited about Christmas. I get to go meet the people that made my favorite person. I'll always take December. Abby, you and Harper have a perfect relationship. She is my person, and I really want everyone to know that. I want to marry her. What are you doing on your phone? I left a gentleman alone in my apartment, so I'm tracking him to make sure he leaves. You're tracking him? Yeah, I track everybody. If the NSA can do it, so can I. I'm so excited. I can't believe I'm finally going to meet everyone. There's something that we should talk about. I didn't tell my parents I'm gay. So who do they think I am? This is Harper's orphan friend, Abby. Yes, of course. They're there. You're so brave. You don't need to be. I cannot believe I've got all my daughters under one roof. So her parents believe their straight daughter brought home her lesbian friend for Christmas? Not exactly. They also think that I'm straight. Have they ever met a lesbian? Uh, Anger and frustration, I think, is a really... Um, we, we would be we're wrong we're in the minority apparently all of america is obsessed with this movie everybody watched it and they all love it what happens here is that abby played by Kristen stewart also um played sometimes by nobody because sometimes Kristen stewart is on the screen but is not there like, oh yeah oh. She, she falls back into like she's old just, Kristen stewart they're just like it's a camera on a person she's like what's happening here What's, what's going on? She's thinking about what she needs to pick up from Trader Joe's later that night. <laughs> yeah. Abby is dating Harper, uh, played by Mackenzie Davis. and Who is also kind of just going through the motions. I, she's a little less going through the motions, I think because she's not gay. So she is really, like, grabbing at Kristen Stewart's face a lot. I think she thinks that, like, um, lesbians just just are constantly reaching for their lovers' faces all the time. Well, I just grab at people's faces constantly for no reason, so... <laughs> it's very awkward walking down the street with you. Um, Harper wants to take Abby to her home for Christmas one night when they are uh, engaged in some, some tomfoolery in their, in their Pennsylvania town. I was like, I, I'm assuming it was like a suburb of Philadelphia or near Pittsburgh or something. I don't know. It's in Pennsylvania somewhere. What Abby doesn't know is that Harper has never told her family not only that she's dating Abby, but that she is gay. So Harper asks Abby to pretend to not be gay to be her orphan roommate uh, at her family's Christmas. Uh, Needless to say, this doesn't go well. One of the reasons being just kind of ham gerrymandered into the story is that Abby doesn't really like Christmas. Uh... That factors into the story zero at all, uh, but it's there. When we get there, we meet uh, Harper's parents, played by Mary Steenburgen and Victor Garber, who seems lost. Like he seems like he's not 100 percent sure what movie he's supposed to be in, um, and takes a minute, takes like a moment to deliver all his lines, like he is actively thinking about them, um, or is like trying is being waken up or something, um, and then. Oh, 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 and he's running for some kind of... He's running for mayor of this of this kind of ambigu- uh, ambiguous town. Uh, we also meet Harper's sisters. Um, Jane, played by Mary Holland, who is, um, the movie wants us to know is a weirdo. And uh, Alison Brie, 
as an ice queen uh, with with two kids and is married to a black guy, so she's politically significant to her dad's political career. She she looks looks the part. Um, but Harper and I don't I, you know I don't know how much of this you picked up. But they kept saying that like Harper was like like the A the A plus kid or something, and she just is a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette or something like that. Like. But she's like the she's like the kid representative at this at this political function that her dad drags him to, and um, while they're there, they meet uh, or Abby meets um, uh, what's her name? Abby Plus Riley, who was Harper's first girlfriend, and they kind of hit it off later. And then Dan Levy is also in this, and he plays a gay best friend who is just. Uh, a mouthpiece for non-traditional... He's uh, like cut and pasted from <laughs> 90s rom-coms with gay best friends. No, but he's he's saying 2020 things. Well, because they just kind of needed... Yeah. They, again, they needed yeah. to kind of get that ideology into the movie somewhere because this movie sticks so closely to stupid... Like typical patriarchal ideas about family just real and Christmas, just real just tropes, just yeah, fucking garbage. This movie fucking stinks. I'm happy it exists. I hope they make a hundred more of these movies, and I hope every single one of them is better than this movie. I don't. What? What was this movie supposed to be doing? I don't. It's not funny. I don't. Everyone's freaking out about. Aubrey Plaza and like her relationship with Abby and like oh that's all this magnetism. Aubrey Plaza seems like she's drunk. I mean, and that is more magnetic than Kristen Stewart. Anybody is more magnetic than Kristen goddamn Stewart. Kristen goddamn Stewart's not doing anything. <sighs> I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I got through half of this movie and then I, I stopped. I just it's it's nothing works. Um, so I can't speak too much of it, but the fact that. I legitimately had to walk away from it because it at one time feels like the, the, the bottom of the barrel dime a dozen films that Netflix would put out every Christmas season or yeah or Hallmark would it's put out. It's like a out, perfect streaming movie. Um, mixed with you know performances that are so flat from actors who can engage on every level. Yeah. Um, is, it was both disappointing and just something that that was that was never never worth my time well just like in a season where i think a lot of i don't know we talk a lot about um we're talking a lot in my family about like precedent setting and stuff like that you know with the election of um kamala harris you know as ascending to the vice presidency and then all these other things happening and all these cabinet picks and just it's one of these things where like if you're i guess if you're you know, of a certain political mindset like you're aware of these things and you celebrate these things and you just want more of this stuff so from like a from a representative standpoint, the idea of this movie is so good. It just seems so weird that, like, in 2020, um, an LGBTQ filmmaker was making a film that hinged on the idea of, like, it was just about being gay. Yeah. Did you? And you didn't see Jingle Jangle at all, right? Um, so it's Netflix's new Christmas movie. Oh, with, no, no. Uh, Forrest Whitaker. Whitaker. So, again, it's representative in the sense that all the main characters are black. Every single one of them. It's interesting and a good movie because the movie is not about the fact that all the main characters are black. 
all the main characters just happen to be played with live actors. It looks like it had good production design. It's I just, good. It's good. I mean, I heard I, it's I heard it's over two hours long. So I was just it's, like, it, it's, it feels really long. It's not as funny as you want to be. Forrest Whitaker's good. The songs are pretty good. The um, the visual effects are great. Like yeah. it's weird that they spent so much money on making um, a Ricky Martin voice <laughs> doll. Like, looks so fucking good, but he looks... I mean, it looks amazing. But again, that movie, I think, works because it's not about that thing. It's weird to have Dan Levy... who I, And I didn't see Shit's Creek, but I, you know, just from what I know about it and what you've said about it... Who plays this kind of very open character in, in Shit's Creek. Like, sexually open. You know what I mean? Yeah, and sorry, like sexuality means... Like there's there, the the entire idea of homophobia and whatnot doesn't exist in right. the the world of Schitt's Creek. The fact that he like the emotional like pivot of this movie is he takes Kristen Stewart outside after Mackenzie Davis's Harper has denied her like again to everybody like that she you know saying to to everyone at this Christmas party where Allison Brie has announced like Harper's gay and then Harper's like I'm not gay. And then, you know, Abby gets the, you know, uh, the wherewithal to leave and, you know, Dan Levy follows her out and um, they make a really interesting comment. They've made it a really interesting comment a couple of times in the film about, like, the idea that coming out is not about you, it's about the person coming out. And I don't have any grounds to understand this except, like, on a general intellectual level. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it makes a lot of sense in the context of what I think this movie should be. But then he gives this speech, which I think is well-intentioned, about the fact that, like, every single, uh, you know, all these people have this, uh, you have your own story. You know what I mean? And it kind of, inf- it kind of informs, like, the way that you relate to the world or, or around you is based a little bit, I think he's suggesting, on how you came out and what, like, the reaction was to that so he had a bad reaction Kristen Stewart's Abbey's had a good her parents were very supportive his family was was not supportive the idea the emotional crux of this movie is that Harper feels that her family won't be supportive and she doesn't want to disappoint she doesn't want to lose them so she has to pretend to be somebody she's not I struggle with the idea that this movie seems to be suggesting that uh, 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 a gay person's individuality is wrapped up solely in how they come out because that seems to be what it's saying. That it's, it's like the crux of your, your, your personal history is this moment. And not like any of the other moments. Um, I don't know. It seems weirdly regressive for a movie that seems so progressive. Yeah, and, and I agree. It's, it, it, just, it, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel right when I was watching it. And maybe I'm watching it wrong. Or I'm, I just... I, 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 like, just the... I, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't feel right. It, no, maybe it, it makes it, me a bad it, person. It, no, it just it feels flat. It feels the performances don't work. Um, it doesn't look great. It just nothing. It doesn't look great. No, nothing about it really matters. Um, conversely, a movie that could also be written of the same theme, yep. still poorly, because uh-huh. Alan Ball uh-huh. fucking sucks. But poorly in a weirdly different way. Yeah, in in the weird Alan Ball way. Uh, but can be lifted by its performances is the Amazon Prime film, uh, Amazon Studios film, I should say, Uncle Frank. Happy birthday, Daddy Mac. Well, that one's wrapped up so nice it must be from Frank. Electric shoe polisher. Next. I never knew why Daddy Mac was so mean to Uncle Frank. He was the kind of person I wanted to be. Smart and funny and considerate. You're gonna be the person you decide to be. You're gonna be the person everyone else tells you are. 
You get to choose. Can I come visit you sometime? Hi, I'm Frank Smith. Oh my God, Beth, nice meeting you. Frank, don't tell me you were coming. That's because he doesn't know. He doesn't know? Oh, well, okay, this is gonna be very exciting. How do you know Uncle Frank? He's my roommate. Wally and I lived together we have for 10 years. Never known anybody who was gay before. Of course you have. Choir director of church. Mr. Jiggerson? But he's so... What? Religious. Ah. Beth has, in 1973, has moved to New York City to attend college, um, leaving her South Carolina home with a deeply conservative and religious family. Um, and her closest kind of relative frank is a professor at the college um and she learns attending a party there that frank is uh, has been secretly gay um and has been gay and living with his partner for 10 years um she seems to, to deal with that well you know even finding out her boyfriend tries to make a, a play on frank mm-hmm. um uh the next day uh as they're kind of having a discussion about it frank gets a call that his father um, a mean Stephen Root. Yeah, mean Stephen Root. Um, you know, it's, it's almost a get out level. Um, has yeah. uh, has died. Um, and then we get the, the road trip movie. You know, they're driving to his funeral. Frank and Wally follows him. Mm-hmm. Surprised by how much I kind of liked uh, like Peter McDissey in this. Loved him. Yeah, loved it. I at first I was like, I'm not gonna like him. He's going to be too much of a serious. And I was like, oh, he, he plays it so well. It reminded me a lot of the um, that. Uh, the pain and glory relationship with, yeah, with Antonio Banderas and the guy whose name I can't pronounce. Um, has their kind of driving and, and getting to the funeral. Frank has, has a series of flashbacks where he uncovers um, a uh, he had a relationship in high school. Um, uh, his father found out about the relationship and said he was an abomination. And um, when Frank turned down his lover uh the lover committed suicide um and from that frank because you know fell into alcoholism and is now a recovering um mm-hmm. alcoholic um and when at the will reading they find out about uh the family finds out about frank's um being gay uh frank has a relapse um wally and beth think that uh you know he's 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 drowned, he's, he's drowned himself just like his ex-lover um, but he's just turned out to have gotten swim and getting drunk. Him and Wally have a fight, but they, um, you know, reconcile. Um, and Frank, um, after, you know, their, their defense from Beth, um, you know, lets Wally meet his family and most of the family, um, you know, have accept them and accept Wally. No problem. Uh, yeah, no, I, 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 this <laughs> suffers from the Alan Ball weirdness of, of storytelling and, and just, just really bizarre dialogue and really bizarre choices. The entire blowjob as poetry scene is just gross because it's kind of like weirdly, like it has a real too much aggressiveness to it. Um, and it comes off as like victimization until, you know, Frank turns it around um, like that scene made me uncomfortable just because it was like so like like no means no sort of thing, but then it played it kind of off as like oh that doesn't mean like that's not what's going on here. Well, it just seemed I I thought it seemed really weirdly staged. Yeah, it like did. he's just like he's just out there smoking pot with a guy, 
And then, like, this guy comes, and he seems really willing to, like, fuck around with this kid. But, like, while simultaneously not. So it seemed like it was trying to have its cake and eat it, too, and be, like, transgressive, but also, like, you know. Yeah. Not. Um, but what carries this movie, and once again, unfortunately, all three of the movies we're going to talk about this week, I'm not, like, super stoked about talking about, because none of them really resonated with me. Uh, what carries this is, is, is an exceptional performance by Paul Bettany. I would yeah, say, great. you know, as much as I don't particularly love this film, I'd say Paul Bettany's kind of up there for the year in performances for mm-hmm. me, um, just because it's it, he's doing something completely different. He has this kind of um, passivity to him throughout the film that's mm-hmm. then kind of buoyed by, like, real intense emotion that, yeah. that feels really earned. Um, Sophia Lilas is 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 kind of falling into her own as a performer. She's, I think she's... Um, and she plays off really well. There's there's tremendously great chemistry between her and Bettany. Yeah, um, I just wish Alan Ball would have given her more things to do besides just follow them around for the last half of the movie and then give a speech which makes no sense. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, what ultimately should have not worked, much like like True Blood doesn't work, Um <laughs> Is is the performances, and that's mm-hmm. the reason. Like Six Feet Under works; it still has the same shit writing, um, but it's carried by solid acting. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow, people, Alan Ball's not a bad enough writer or director to where even the best performances um, can't save it. At least for some reason, he writes stuff. His writing can at least be carried by people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, Anna Paquin and and uh, Stephen, whatever that guy's fucking last name was, are not those types of actors. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, I think it's, it was weird watching Happiest Season one day and then watching Uncle Frank the next day because they uh, uh, relate so closely in, in theme and message. <coughs> I think the interesting thing about this film versus the other film is that there's no... There's like real... There seems to be real stakes to um, the hiddenness of... Um, or what they're trying to keep hidden and who they're trying to keep it hidden from. So the fact that, like, Wally's family... Doesn't... It's 1973 as well. 1973. The fact that they're going to the South where, like, you know, he's like, we could be put in jail or hung. Like, you know, best put in jail, worst we could be hung if we're, you know, found out. Um, Wally kind of says the same thing in Saudi Arabia. I would have been beheaded. That's why, like, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't talked about his parents with it. Um, where in, you know, Harper's case, she just doesn't want to make her family sad. Um... <laughs> that's it a sad looking Victor Garber is, he is looks not... sad anyway yeah um, but again again, I, I think there's there's all this there's all this stuff in here uh, like you said that makes no sense I think the flashback stuff is handled just atrociously I don't think he needs to be an alcoholic no I don't I mean I, I think it, I think I guess it provides some like juice for why they might be concerned yeah but just have him be have him have him have like a have him get really drunk because of the memory of that yeah you're you could still be concerned about somebody because they're drunk yeah the 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 threat of the impending uh um uh, relapse relapse is, is is seems unnecessary but i also think um there was a point when they're driving and he's like, oh, who are you worried about? And he's like, Sam. And we're just like, we don't know who Sam is. But I think one of the, when I mentioned to you via text, I was like, this movie has a lot of structural problems in the sense that it introduces you to this huge family in the beginning of the movie, but it doesn't really tell you who anybody is. So when he says like, oh, Aunt Neva, like Neva knows, you're like, who the fuck is Neva? Because they didn't mention that like he has a, another, he has a sister too. Yeah. Like on top of it. And you don't know who she is. 
And then he's like, oh, Sam. And then you're just like, who the hell is Sam? And I thought it was his... I thought it was Steve Zahn's character. He's like, no, it's Mike. So who the fuck is Sam? It's not like this... It's this weird thing that's like... There's nothing hovering over this this film, but Alan Ball seems to want you to like feel like even though he just kind of dumps stuff on top of you that like, oh oh I that's really powerful or that's really I feel so sad for him that this happened like I don't I don't I don't get it I just don't I I don't like understand some of the choices the narrative choices that he made but again Paul Bettany is so fucking good that he makes this material. Just kind of like, I don't know, he just like elevates the whole movie when he's really doing something. Um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird one. But again, I think these two movies are indicative of something. And they're, indica- they're aligned to something we talked about when we talked about Run on the bonus episode. Um, is that I think this is what the streaming... I think this is what like the streaming services are for now. Is that these mid-budget movies... Are like perfect for streaming services. So many more people are going to see Happiest Season on Hulu than would have gone to see it in theaters. Mm. You know what I mean? So many more people are going to have are going to watch Uncle Frank because it's there, um, and it's got some it's got some actors that they may have that may be familiar with than would have gone to see this in like you know the Bethel Cinema or in, in like the yeah. small theater in Criterion. And how many more eyes now get on films like? Um, you know, she dies tomorrow, sure. or um, support the girls, or which like you know they had their small release on VOD, and then mm. a few months later came out on like two months later came yeah. out on streaming. Or Portrait of a Lady on Fire, or, pri- or movies that eventually were bought by Netflix, like Private Life. Mm-hmm. Like how many more people see like you get these mid level films that are middling or bad, um, but they 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 at least can kind of put in um his house being a great recent example. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you put you put that in amongst all this and people go like, Well what are we gonna watch tonight? Let's watch this and eventually it kind of opens people to better films. Yeah. I think I mean I think I mean unfortunately when you're us and you watch all these you're just like, fuck, I have to watch these. Well I kinda of felt that way about Happiest Season, where I was just kind of like, this movie's a bummer. Like this this movie should be better. I want this movie to be so much I had no expectations for Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank was not re Uncle Frank was not the first of anything. Someone yeah. had made Uncle Frank like 1,500 times. I expected, Nobody had made Happiest Season before, and I really wanted it to be good, and it wasn't. I expected my reactions to these two films would be flipped. Like I Me expected too. Happiest Season to be like not great, but have be carried by something. I and, fully expected to sit down here with you and for you to try to convince me the Happiest Season was good. Not because you're an idiot, but just because like it. I just expected it to have a certain kind of production value and standards that you can that the representation kind of overwhelmed or the representation kind of inspired a better a more um uh um what the fuck is the word i'm looking for a more generous viewing of the film mm. and it wasn't but again maybe uh, we're we're not the right people or we're bad people or something Probably. I so, sometimes when I like feel this way about like a movie that like other people like, I feel shitty. I know. I do. I, I feel mean, shitty that I didn't like Happiest Season, but I didn't. Art's it's just no good. Art's all subjective. I don't. I, I don't dig the Beatles. I'm not saying they're bad. I mean, we say like the shit's terrible because like that's our opinion. But yeah, if somebody came up to us and said Happiest Season is their favorite movie of all time, and then could like you know 
say why or whatnot or like have an opinion. I would just go like, okay, cool. But don't you think if someone said Happiest Season was their favorite movie of all time, it would have nothing to do with the movie? I'd assume so, yeah, no. But you know, you know what I mean, though. But if somebody yeah. came up to me and said, I really liked Happiest Season, mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay, fine. Like, whatever. Um, like, even though I hated it, yeah. There's some movies where I'd get a little more assholey about, like, Trial yeah, of the yeah. Chicago 7. I think yeah. I'd be much yeah, more yeah. asshole. Actually, I agree with you 100%. Um, there's a level of Happiest Season's just trying to make people happy, and it didn't make me happy, and it made somebody else happy, that's fine. I think Happiest Season's not a great, a well-made movie, but if it, if it, uh, if it made you glad for a little bit, you did a good job. I think the difference between Trial of Chicago 7 is that, in, in something like Happiest Season, that Trial of Chicago 7 is trying to, like, convince you that you are wrong or that these people are right and, like, this is the ideology that is the best ideology. And literally a month later, the same movie comes down without comes out any of that fucking dead weight attached to it and you're just like... Whoa. Oh, oh this is what this feels like when yeah. someone is not trying to shove something down my fucking throat. When somebody's that good of a director that they don't need to like add any of that noise to it because you know they're just like, oh, I can write and I can direct and whatever. Right. Well, something I mean to that for that speaking to that exact idea, that same director can make a movie that features um, mostly singing, and then I think most of the dialogue. If you like, you went to chart it like the highest percentage of dialogue belongs to the DJs. Yeah, like talking along and singing along it, with the it's movies. It's actually mostly to a police siren, I believe. <laughs> yeah, to that siren that just like signals the changing of the things. Um, the movie we are talking about is the second film to be released in Steve McQueen's Small Axe uh, film series on Amazon uh, Prime, and it is called Lovers Rock. Uh, Lover's Rock takes place in London again. We are in 1980 uh, instead of the 68-69 of Mangrove. Um, little backstory that's not really mentioned in the movie is that um, black people were not allowed in the dance clubs uh, in certain parts of London, most parts of London, and so they would make uh, their own. They'd have these house parties, the blues parties, um, where people would go, people would cook, they'd set up a DJ, and these DJs would... would just play, uh, you know, what they called lovers rock, which is this reggae uh, style. Um, I don't really. Uh, it's hard to for me to know like what to say about it. It just is. You kind of know when you hear. It. If you watch the movie, you're like, oh, okay, that's what it sounds like. That's lovers rock. Um, the movie, I guess, has uh, is like I think we mentioned before, 71 minutes, or maybe we mentioned somewhere else, 71 minutes. Um, it takes place over the course of an evening and into the into the morning um our main characters are martha played by amara j st aubin and franklin played by michael ward there's also uh there's a couple of other people that feature prominently in this there's ellis george's cynthia there's this guy bammy played by daniel francis swabby who's kind of intense and scary wears a cool hat um but he is a terrible person we find out um there's, um, you know, I don't, I don't, it's hard to really know who 
like to describe to you as a main character what is really kind of important because the most important thing in this movie is the songs and there are songs playing through this whole movie there's almost not a moment in this movie where there is not a song playing even at parts where there isn't the where the DJs aren't playing something the women that are making the food for the for the party later are singing in the kitchen they're singing Janet Kay's Silly Games which is going to come up later uh, in the movie, which was like the big hit of that um, of that era, uh, or that specific moment um, of that era, um, it's just wall to wall music. It's, and then eventually it becomes wall to wall dancing, and that dancing uh, leads into other stuff. Um, it leads into assaults. It leads into people finding each other. It leads into some soul searching. It leads into just tons of stuff. I think one of the things that I took away from this movie. Um, is that everyone was going to these parties seemingly, or Steve McQueen's uh, suggesting as such, that they are going to these parties for a different reason. Everyone has their own reason to go there, and it could be sex, and it could be just to dance, it could be to get away from stuff, it could be as a release, um, it could be... For that food, because that all looks really good. Yeah, all the food looks really good. Um, it could be for, for community, you know what I mean? It could be for, for, it could be for anything. Um, and the the importance of these things of these moments of these dances were are i think are really apparent in the film um i fucking love this movie uh i think it has two of just like amazing i mean it's a 71 minute movie and it has two scenes that are just like all-time fucking scenes so i mentioned the silly games they play silly games at the party the dance floor is full uh people are dancing they're grinding against each other it's like the song is so long and then eventually the song just kind of fades out and then people just keep singing the song acapella the whole room just sings the song there's this note that uh, janet k hits in it and this one woman just like hits the shit out of the note and it just keeps going and you have these people stamping around like the the percussion is just these people's dancing feet and it's just fucking amazing and then that is followed up with a uh presentation of uh the revolutionary song kuta kinte which if you listen to it out of context is cool but doesn't carry the same fucking weight they play this song three times in a row on uh in the movie all the men mostly it's mostly men like are, are, fucking rolling around on the ground they're kind of like it's almost like a mosh thing but it seems much more tribal and much more ritualistic it's like a, a real expression of something it's like a brotherhood intense yes. it's really like a... really really fucking intense and it's amazing and then the film kind of ends with Martha and Franklin going off together uh, Franklin takes Martha to the place that he works it's this you know garage uh and you know he kisses her and and then his boss comes and you know tells him you can't do that in here and then she leaves and she gives him the phone number to a telephone box and she says she's gonna she's gonna call him at that box at five o'clock and for him to be there and um you know maybe i guess i'll go to another dance together and she sneaks back into her house the movie opens with her sneaking out of her house it um ends with her sneaking back into it she lays down in bed only a second before her mother says it's time for her to go to church um and it's the whole movie and like that little like smile that she gets with the church. Yeah. Like she has she has a smile on her face and it kind of starts to fade. Mm-hmm. And when she like just go to church, she smiles again. I like that. It's just it's it's uh, it's but it's it's weird. It is not like a normal movie. It doesn't feel like a normal movie. 
It's something else. But it also doesn't feel like an episode of television. It, it feels, feels like an experience. It feels like a, a concert film. Yeah, like almost. Um, yeah. And that's the thing. It has a real kinetic energy going for it. Um, I, I appreciate this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's like a, the things based around music. Uh, popular music mm-hmm. really don't appeal to me. Um, and that doesn't that's not any different here. Um, and I go for Steve McQueen for storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I appreciate Steve McQueen's storytelling. And, and even though he's, he's masterful in his direction of this, um, I, I didn't like the silly game scene. I don't know why, but I just felt mm-hmm. like it just was going on, but it's because it's, oh, it's, it's carried by the music mm-hmm. and visually like, like it's all like really carried by sound, but visually for me, I'm like, Oh, this is like, not doing Steve McQueen things I wanted it to do. Well, simultaneously doing like all the Steve McQueen things, but it's yeah. so closed in yeah. that it doesn't, I, I'm, I think I'm the same way. It's like when he has an opportunity to, he just opens everything. Everything feels much bigger and much more well, open. Uh, yeah. And that's why I think, I think the thing is that, that I really attach myself to with the Steve McQueen experience is, um, the, the 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 major sequences going on and the focus on the individual and you know the composition of shot just saying so much of mm-hmm. emotion in one shot and like the the small or the silly game sequence kind of just as um more about focusing in on the experience of what's going on and um i i think i don't know it just it it felt like a carry i i just couldn't connect to it that mm-hmm. the dance sequence that follows with the men is fucking tremendous mm. um it is what gasper Noel should be like rewatch that and be like oh right i suck yeah. um like it's 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 what it carries that same veracity that, I that, thought that about climax. climax wanted to do but well, like it's... has a real earnestness and 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 sincerity to it. it it doesn't you know it doesn't need any sort of pretense behind it it shares um, a color palette too which was not mm-hmm. helpful and not thinking about climax when i was watching this um which I and I, climax is a movie I've come to kind of like. Oh really? In a way. I've I've, I've, like, come, I've come to think like Gaspar No sucks. Like I think he sucks too. But I thought that climax was uh, felt weird and it, it felt different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I it just it brought me to like a little bit of a different headspace. And I think there's a little bit of that at play here where I was I was kind of open to it, and so I was kind of in the I felt very in the room. Yeah. Like, during a lot of those things. So, like, when, you know, like I said, with the stomping feet during the Silly Games thing, I kind of, I almost felt like I could feel it, like, in my, like, you know, so, if you're dragged into it, it, it gets you, and if you're kind of not, then you're just kind of left to, you're kind of left trying to figure out a story arc, and then there's only enough story arc to move it forward, it, but it's propelled by the movie. What's interesting, too, is, I, and I think there's, like, breaths that exist in the first 30 minutes of this film that kind of like carry it. So it kind of ebbs and flows yeah. and carries it's, it's not like that kind of constant um, percussive beat to it. It, 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 it will slow down for a moment mm-hmm. to pull back and to, before bringing it back in. And I think that silly games part, is just like so otherly, like fully into it. Yeah. That you, you don't, you don't slow down. And I start like, like feeling as though what I, I, felt to that point is so such a tight experience because like the you know mangrove is such a tight fully realized experience that to reiterate um i, I forgot his name sorkin that's how much you fucking don't matter you suck as a like a maker of everything because mangrove shits on your face yeah 
fuck Trial of Chicago 7 outside of, like, Eddie Redmayne and some of the other performances. Like, oh my god, that movie fucking sucks. <laughs> um, that's probably, that's probably gonna be, I, I, I'd hate to put it on my worst, but I think as, like, an overall movie, I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the worst well, movies I think of the it's, year. It's, I think it's just, it's setting. gonna, it's gonna yeah. be interesting, because it's probably gonna have performances in my best, but it's also, mm-hmm. like, I watched that and go, like, imagine if Steve McQueen had made both of those movies. Oh yeah. Well, he wouldn't have because <laughs> no, he'd be like, these guys are babies. He's like, yeah, I don't fuck here. Um, but I, I just think like like with with you know coming so soon off a of Mangrove, um, like like my, not necessarily I just say my expectations were that were were were, were not met. Um, and I wasn't expecting something different. It just like me. It just wasn't operating on the level that um, I was like in the headspace for. So so it's kind of like I, I'm not definitely not saying that this movie doesn't work it, it's mm-hmm. it seriously works in every way it's setting out to do mm-hmm. it's just that i can't be yeah in love with it because it's Which just not fine. doing the thing yeah, yeah. That i want i mean i think to do. i think one, the thing i kind of and uh, maybe to that point a little bit is that i think the silly games thing and then the kundakinje thing afterwards is they're the reason that you they're the they're the moments that stick in your head and they're the reason that you come back to the party wherever it is the next week or then wherever they have the next one. You know what I mean? Where you, uh, young because Steve you... McQueen is buried underneath coats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear that story about how he said, like, he went yeah, to yeah. love him and woke up buried um, under coats? Where, like, if you're Martha, like, that's what I just imagine him with his, like, little glasses. <laughs> Head poking up. Just taking notes in his mind. I will use these He's like, later. Eventually I'm going to get an Irishman one shot. <laughs> um... Yeah, and that's and I think it's really indicative of Alice by Kendra's husband's penis. <laughs> um, I think it's indicative of something that like I'm missing a little bit with like no lie. So I'm not missing going to the movies as much as I kind of a little bit of missing like going to a bar and like seeing like a band. And even that was something I I didn't love to do. As like a musician myself, I suppose it's like one of the things I'm missing. And like you always hope for that one moment that you're gonna kind of take with you and that you're gonna. Or with a band that you're going to connect with and you're going to go see that band again, maybe, or whatever. I'm missing, like, interestingly enough, and, and on this is, I'm missing, um, and I guess it's in the same revive, is, is things I didn't like go, like, Dan, you know, like, Dan Deacon, the musician, Dan Deacon? Yeah. Like, the vibe of, like, those concerts where it's just, like, a dance experience. Mm-hmm. And I hated that before, but I'm missing that. Yeah. And I don't know if that, that just want to jump in. No, 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 like, but I, it's... The weird things you're not missing. Not that, but I think that, I think that um, experience of... of being in kind of like a different experience, like an all-encompassing experience for... Like a community sort of experience. Yeah, 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 where it's just you're kind of entering a new realm, and it's a realm that's created just for this one night because these people just happen to be there, and this band is playing, and their performance is going to be exists for just this one moment, and you're going to drink this one beer, and it's going to be something, but it's going to hit you in just the right way, and it's just it's all these things together make an experience and it's memorable but it's never going to happen again mm. and like i feel like because of covid all of the experiences are all the same all the time and they all happen again like every time <laughs> every day um you know you eat the same food you see the same people you drink the same beers you know you switch up the beers but then you get sick of those beers and you drink a different beer but then you realize that it tastes like this other beer or that you've already had that beer uh, and then and you, you try watch cocktails, it. and you're like, oh, cocktails are kind of the same. Well, the thing is, you just watch this. You watch a movie. You watch Happiest Season. And you're just like, well, that's not that good. And then you watch, like Uncle Frank, and you're like, well, this is just the same movie as Happiest Season, but it's 
different and it's not different and all this other stuff. You're just kind of like, oh, what's where? Where is the different stuff? Where is the memorable experiences? And maybe we'll look back and this whole year will be one. Will be like we can think of it in the same way that like you know the people that went to that blues party in Lovers Rock like thought of that one moment. Um, and it's not like necessarily a thing we're going to want to go back to, but it's a thing that's going to stick out in our heads. Um, and I think Lovers Rock is kind of indicative of that. Um, for me, um, works on that level. Works on that kind of experiential level where like this is an experience. It's just this one experience. It's never going to happen again, or it's never going to. And if it does happen again, it's not going to happen the same way. Um, yeah. I guess I'm missing that. Yeah, no, no, agreed. But I also think it's just fucking great. So, good work, Steve McQueen. I'm looking forward to the next three of these. For sure. For sure. All right, we'll be back with your number 10. Oh, yes, my number 10. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm so confused. Welcome back. I love doing welcome back when I when we get to do it. Well, Usually do welcome back. Don't take it from me. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to introduce this movie. Uh, I talked previously about how Jurassic Park was my first introduction to the real big popcorn movie. And that is a true statement. I have not lied in this podcast. <laughs> what does that even mean? I just don't know. Maybe I did lie. Um... But this movie at my number 10 represents the film that, like, I don't know, ingratiated me to the blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Ingratiated me to the entire feeling of the adventure and the scope and the miraculous nature that film could represent in terms of leading me on this wild ride. And it has stuck with me forever. Um... In the sense that, like, I've not been a sci-fi guy. Mm-hmm. I liked Alien. We talked about it before. I like monster stuff. We talked about it before. But I like something grounded with, like, the person on the ground traveling around the world. As we talked about with the uh, Baraka? Baraka. Baraka yeah. episode. Like, I'm a, I'm a grounded sort of guy. Mm-hmm. And this is... The adventure, this is the excitement, this is the the blockbuster, this is the thing that gets me excited and, and, you know, regardless of what my first experience was with it, this is the movie that, like, got me shaking. Like, when I saw a movie, I got, Mm -hmm. I shook because I was so excited. And this movie is Steven Spielberg's 1981 film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Three thousand years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark. If it 
It is there, Atanis. And it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. So the professor from What Lies Beneath has a crush on Frank's girlfriend from Scrooged and took up with her. He's like, listen, I got to find the Ark of the Covenant, I guess. Um, That's the best description ever. And so I got to fight like this English actor who's pretending to be German, who has some sort of makeup on his hand. And eventually Frank Marshall's going to be a plane pilot because of the fact that everyone's sick during this day. You know, we're going to do stuff, and eventually we're going to find the Ark of the Covenant, but then the Nazis are going to take it, and then our faces are going to melt, and then the Ark's going to be, you know, put into the warehouse. warehouse. That's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not going to do a plot description because it's fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, I feel bad that, and I want to apologize to JP, because JP had said to me in a text... Doc Ock died for this movie. Textual communication. Yeah, it's true. Um, this is actually a big Alfred Molina movie. I mean, weak. Because he's in both of these movies. Yeah. Uh, JP said this might be his number one. His, if he was making a pivotal film list, this would be his number one. And I didn't yeah. invite him today because of COVID, COVID. things. Yeah. And it was just Thanksgiving and like you know we all saw people. JP loves just putting his mouth on other people's mouths. He doesn't, really but I was just—I was just trying to kind of cut down on like the risk factor by like inviting one less person to like scream in each other's faces. Um, but also JP loves putting his mouth sure. on mouths. Yeah, sorry, JP. Really weird. <laughs> uh, no, so I don't know. This movie encapsulates fun to me, and from an early age, like. We talked about Jurassic Park being like the popcorn movie that I first saw. But there's there's a lot of high drama in that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like high tension. Mm-hmm. Not Alexander Asia style, but just a lot of just tension in that movie that kind of like unseats the fun. Whereas every time I come back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's just like a goofy funness to it. Everything is like a set piece. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this in the podcast multiple times. I'm a video game-ish guy. I like moments of like high tension followed by like a reprieve. And Raiders of the Lost Ark is the m- m- ultimate video game mo- like movie. Like it has moments of like high tension followed by like a slight reprieve. Mm-hmm. You know, you think Marion's dead, and so and she Indy- is dead. And so Indy goes back and is thinking about dates and is finding out things about the medallion and that monkey's dead and bad dates. Bad dates. Bad says Gimli from yeah. Lord of the Rings. Uh, that's a law. Yeah. No. Uh, my introduction to this movie is. I th- it's before Jurassic Park, but I didn't get it. I saw this and Last Crusade before. Jurassic Park. I saw Jurassic Park in Me too. 93. Me too. I saw all the Indiana Jones before Jurassic Park. I didn't Park. see Temple of Doom before Jurassic Park. I think Temple of Doom was the first Jurassic Indiana Jones movie I saw. Really? Yeah. The first one I saw was Last Crusade. 
Um, but then I uh, see Jurassic Park and like there's too much going on. Like I love Jurassic Park, but there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And I come back to Raider. I come back to Last Crusade actually. I come back to Last Crusade and there's like these beats. I love there's Last this, Crusade. There's uh, I think Last Crusade is the most fun mm-hmm. I have with Indiana sure. Jones movies, yeah. but there's beats with it. There's like breaths. Mm-hmm. And then I watch Raiders and there's more beats and there's more breaths, but there's like a I don't know. There's just like a, a cleanliness to those beats there's like a there's an intentionality to the beats yeah, in, exactly. in Raiders of the Lost Ark so he Spielberg is really after making a specific kind of movie and uh, Last Crusade was uh, of just a version of Raiders so it had more action yeah, but it's also like, it's more like a Raiders, jokes a Raiders is clean Temple of Doom's experimentation Last and Crusade then, is just like it's like a false synth- the walls. I know what I'm doing. I'm yeah, it's like a it synthesis out. of all the things yeah. that make the first two movies. Because that's the like thing. I've done ET. I've done. There's only three Indiana Jones movies. There's only three. That's very true. I'm gonna. In- There's say- only four Die Hard movies. I'm gonna say this again. There's only three Indiana Jones movies. There's only four Die Hard movies, and they're all good. There's only four Die Hard movies, and they're all good. Yeah. I'm going to say this again. There's three Indiana Jones movies. There's four Die Hard movies. They're all good. The fourth Die Hard's fun. It has good intentions. Right. Um, and they're, like you said, they're all kind of... Raiders sets a template. Temple of Doom messes with the template. And then Last Crusade's like, fuck it. The template's really good. Like, let's add Sean Connery and just go. You know what I mean? And River Phoenix in the beginning. Of- right. And then and that scene is fucking great. I mean, that River well, Phoenix I, scene is just fantastic. I texted you this uh, last night. I stayed up through the River scene, River Phoenix scene, fell asleep, and woke up um, on the He Chose Poorly. He, he Chose Poorly. Well, the thing. So, I mean, the best thing about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is that... I guess this is all actually those- ultimately a review of all three movies. I think so. I, like... Is that those Last Crusade lines, it belongs in a museum. He doesn't say that ever in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ever. But it seems like well, he does. Like well, when you see him say it, you're just like, boy, he definitely well, said the that thing, Raiders. You know, the thing I love about Raiders is like Baloch is just says like, I am just a shadow of you. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, in Raiders is, it's, there's a self-awareness to Indiana Jones' anti-hero in Raiders, that's fun. But he's also not... Like, his anti-hero-ness is not so... So anti. So the thing, yeah, I don't just, get the impression that that Steven Spielberg had a really clear sense of making a good movie. Because in a lot of ways, our buddy Lawrence Kasdan wrote a stupid movie. By the way, yeah, Lawrence Kasdan wrote this movie. <laughs> yeah. He and snuck into the top ten. And it's really... He stuck into... My top ten. How's that feel, Lawrence? Good? No, no, no. No, Lawrence, put that rat down. We're not going to talk about that rat. You eat that, buddy. <laughs> That's for you. You earned it. It's candied. Candied rat. And it's still alive. Candid rat. <laughs> Figure that out. Um, This movie is dumb. But it's not dumb in a way that like betrays the audience's intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's dumb because it's supposed to be dumb. Absolutely. So the thing that like the thing that always bugged me about Raiders of the Lost Ark was, you know, Indy goes into the map room, Sala gets apprehended somehow, 
India still manages to get out of the map room. Salah gets unapprehended. And then throws a Nazi flag downstairs. Indy gets <laughs> surveying equipment from someone. He surveys the land around him. The place that they choose to dig for, like, you know, the actual... Uh, Ark of the Covenant. The soul... What was yeah. it? Well of Souls? Yeah. Is literally... 50 feet from where everyone else is digging. And nobody sees it until, like, the last possible second. They've been digging for all day. And not one of the Nazis noticed until... Until Indy's amongst the Asps. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um... But it works. Yeah, I just accept How it. else would it work? I mean, I don't accept it. But it also I understand that it works on a pulp, like you said before, like a pulp level. That's what's supposed to happen in these movies. Is that you get to do... You even get to take off your, your fake Muslim clothing and wear your Indiana Jones garb out in the open where everyone can see you. And nobody notices until the next morning when they're like, hmm... Something's going on over there. There's no women in our tent anymore, so we can definitely see that there's something amiss going on over 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 there. Oh yeah, and why did I get you that dress to wear? Just wear you this know, dress. And this is the thing that work. The thing that works for me is just like at a young age when I saw this, it was so simple. Oh it was yeah, so much fun. Oh, it's great. I, th- I saw this when I was like. Like I said, I saw Jurassic Park first, but like there was this real resiliency, resiliency in my seventy-eight-year-old brain to to Jurassic Park. But when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, it made sense. Mm-hmm. It just like beat, 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 yeah. beat, and I want to rewatch it. Beat, 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 beat. I want to rewatch it because it's so clean, mm-hmm. um, clean in the sense of like it's so easy. It's such an easy movie to digest. Well, I told you I watch. I showed it to um, parts of it to my seven year old, and he's just like loves it. It's just like a part of it. It's almost like he's been watching it his whole life. Like you know, he just ad- adopted Indiana Jones's kind of. Give him a PlayStation like three, and he can play Uncharted now. <laughs> no, we got an Atari. He's playing Pitfall. Hey, <laughs> play Pitfall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And he fucking hates it. Um, <laughs> no, but he like gets it. Like he's just like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like you know, the 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 scene that sticks out to everybody, and which sticks out maybe I guess to a seven year old the best is, um, Indian Marion running through that that the, you know the streets of that um, Egyptian town, and then the sword guy be like ah! like splitting his sword around, and then Indy just pulling out his gun and going. Terrorist report being I have dysentery. Like my little guy is just like that's the best thing ever. So now, like when we go to bed, like I'll kiss him goodnight, and he'll be like, Poof, and I'll be like, Poof. because it's just like it doesn't it, like he doesn't have, and so I can use it to my benefit and say like you don't have to be afraid of whatever. Indiana Jones wasn't afraid. You just take out your gun and just casually shoot the sword guy with the horrible teeth, yeah. or you hit him with the in the head with a pan. You know, after he just kind of does that. <laughs> um, it is. I mean, I think you're right. Is that it's so simple, but it makes you feel so good that when you're watching it, like this simplicity goes out the window. It's a the idea that it's simple movie. goes out the window. Explain that term because I've never heard that before. Pigs in a blanket? Like, well, like, how is it a pigs in a blanket movie? What does oh, that I mean? Meant, like, in my youth, pigs in a blanket was like a comforting like breakfast food. 
You ate pigs and blanket for breakfast? Yeah. Like sausages wrapped in pancakes? <laughs> what are you? Are you English or what? Have Did you, you wrap a banger in a pancake? This is a West Coast thing. Wait, do you said pigs in a blanket or a sausage wrapped in a pancake? I said pigs in a blanket, which is sausage in a pancake. That's what, what? pigs in a blanket. No, is. it's not. What the fuck are you talking about? Pigs in a blanket is a hot dog in a crescent roll. What the fuck are you talking about? That's what it is. No, it's a sausage. I just destroyed our. Podcast. It's a sausage in a pancake. Oh my god. We are now, and we don't like. We have differing views of oh, Seinfeld, man. and the, pigs of a blanket means a different thing. Uh, the coastal differences have just popped I'm up. I'm going to tell my kids tomorrow morning that pigs in a blanket is a sausage and a pancake, and they'd be like, "What <laughs> the vomit, fuck?" And vomit on you. It's a Megan that I'll ask her what pigs in a blanket is. Let's ask her. Let's see what she says. Go fuck yourself. This is the thing. Is that I don't eat. Mammals. You just um, ask, no, ask Jordan. Be like, no, that's just. This is literally a pig in a blanket. Jordan, and we Jordan, eat it. Jordan would just eat whatever meat. We cooked whatever. the pig in a blanket, and then we Not ate to criticize it. Criticize Jordan. She's she's from she Iowa. Just likes meat. Um. <laughs> uh, but I think you're. But I think I think um I think you're on to something. And I don't think we 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 don't we tend not to like. Uh, celebrate our picks for our films in, in like the position for our lists. Oh, I, I always do. No, but we don't do it to each other. I think the idea that like this is your number ten kind of speaks volumes to the idea of what your number nine and eight and like going forward is. Is that this represents some kind of like uh, simplicity of film? Like it's just pure pleasure. Yeah, and it's expertly done because Steven Spielberg is a phenomenal filmmaker. Um, and Lawrence Kasdan is the best of all screenwriters. So easily, yeah. So <laughs> I mean, he's been stuck in our basement for months, years, um, rethinking his French kiss decisions. <laughs> he developed time travel abilities so that he could refine well, listen, Raise the Lost Ark script. If, if 2020 was really a problem year for movies, then we would be doing a French kiss, a standalone bonus episode. To just run. But it's not. There's a million movies coming out. There's too many movies. But, like, because of that, Lawrence Kasdan is not going to get his due. He's never getting out of here. We we promised him he could leave after we finished, but we may never finish. You promised it. I didn't. He's a nice guy. I whipped him. I'll be your partner! He's earned it with his great screenwriting. He's... (laughs) I... This is, slowly pressed his cheek <laughs> and then slapped his ass seven times to let him know who's boss. I did not know about this podcast. Oh man, I have to find him. I mean, we're gonna get like a copyright claim at some point for Lawrence Kasdan off of mentioning his name because he's definitely <laughs> copyrighted his name. If you oh, want to copyright your name, we're you can done. do it at Tom's number ten coming up next. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I was listening to the um, episode of every time we do a Paul Thomas Anderson film I go back to the Mark Maron WTF and it was he did it when Inherent Vice came out so it's not like super relevant to some of the other movies that we've talked about well I guess I mean just the Phantom Thread was the most recent conversation we had about 
Um, no, there will be blood. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but it didn't include it didn't include Phantom Thread, so it's just you know just limited to kind of what his worldview was when he made Inherent Vice and blah blah blah. So he, one of the things he talked about was he talked about um, seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman for the first time in Scent of a Woman, and he was like, um, you know, when I drew up when I was a kid, and I was like writing movies in my head and like thinking of like which actors I was going to use, like I never envisioned that guy. But, like, when I saw him on screen, I, I knew, like, he was for me. Like, that's what he, that's, that was the word. He's like, he, that guy was for me, and I was for him, and, like, all this other stuff. And, then, you know, they made five movies together, and he got nominated for an Academy Award for one of them. Um, and is, you know, amazing in all of them. And I kind of feel like, I feel like something similar happened when I saw, actually, I'm not going to say I feel like. I know something similar happened when I saw Magnolia. There is the story of a boy genius. Thomas Kidd, Jean-Baptiste Poclamoyer. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Bejar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Kidd, Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's no one else. No one else. The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you, too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. So I saw Boogie Nights first because Boogie Nights came out when I was in high school. It was one of those movies. I don't know if you had movies like this, but like when you were at someone's house for a party, like you'd put it on and like, you know, everyone would be like, this is this part. It's, oh, it's the fucking part. It's like, oh, this is the dick part. You know what I mean? So Yeah, unfortunately, that was all like the Tarantino filmography. For so me. there was a lot of that too, but Boogie Nights was definitely one of those movies where I was aware of it from its kind of um, the subversive way that the kids my age so like 16 year olds or whatever would kind of engage with it like it was this this dirty object like because there was drugs yeah. and there was porn and there's all this other heather stuff heather graham is roller girls not not a bad thing and heather graham meant something different in 1997 than she does currently <laughs> still a fan no, no i'm not saying that people aren't fans i'm just saying that she was you know part of the culture then and now yeah, she's you know whatever whatever she's doing i think she directed a movie last year this year I think you might be right on Something that. Something with one of the chicks from the... Uh, one of the women from the office in it. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. I saw Magnolia when it came out in its... Uh, I was working at the record store and New Line decided to release its beautiful... We've talked about these before. Um, they're like double disc special edition collector's DVD sets. So there was... You had your Sevens. You had your Boogie Nights. Um, what else was there? I don't remember. There was other things. 
But one of the ones that they came out with was Magnolia, and it was relevant because Magnolia had just come out um, on DVD, so it was good, and I watched it. Um, and it... I don't really even know. It was just one of those things that, like... For one, it kind of connected... I was into Amy Mann a little bit, and this got me more... I knew who Amy Mann was, and I had had an earlier record... But um, I had never spent a lot of time with Amy Mann. And Amy Mann, Paul Thomas Anderson has said, kind of inspired the whole of, of what would become Magnolia. At least the, the some of the, like the tone and like the atmosphere and what it would kind of sound like and feel like, just I think from a movement standpoint. Um, so that's why you have an Amy Mann song kind of accompanying like a lot of stuff that's going on uh, in the movie. And Amy Mann songs that seem like they're 10 minutes long. I mean, that first momentum... That, that song momentum that happens like at the very beginning of the film um, as you know the film is kind of crossing between you know one character to another character and showing all these people trying to get to the place that they're supposed to be going um, seems like it's 15 minutes long it's not it's like a four minute song um, but you ever see a movie and you you feel like you you know you've never seen it before but it kind of feels like you've seen it like a hundred times and like you just kind of know it and it like feels good and you're just like, well, this is this is my thing. Like it hits the tonal shifts that you expect from it. Well, it, it just it's and when it or maybe it's like another way to think of it. Like when you when it does shift tonally, you like shift right along with it. And it can take all the weird chances and do all the crazy stuff that a film like Magnolia was prone to do. And that people still kind of like mock it for being like three hours long and having all these characters and then you know it ends with a rain of frogs and people just kind of like coming together a little bit and like having these minor understandings about things and um not a lot of things are but it's just wacky you know and to where people stop what they're doing in the middle of the film and they sing a song together um everyone takes a turn singing this amy mann song wise up um you know you have all you just have you have this infomercial thing that Tom Cruise is doing in the middle of it, and you're just like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do I'll do all of that. What is William H Macy doing? Doesn't matter. Oh, there's a super trap playing in the background for no reason at that bar all the time. Sure, that's great. Julianne Moore just like yelling at people like her <laughs> like professional people, and and then eventually um, at Pat Healy, the immortal Pat Healy. Um, who was really taking over this podcast. Um, you know, in, in the drugstore, like, these things are not, like, I don't know, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a normal movie, and I don't think it's regarded as a normal movie. It's regarded as this kind of, this kind of wild swing, and I think Paul, and Paul Thomas Anderson talks about it, like, he said it in in, in that WTF, um, episode he said it in this long interview that he did on the ringer that like he was just because boogie nights went so well he was just like fuck it i can do whatever i want and then when his dad died he was like i got all this material i have all these feelings i'm just gonna write this huge movie and then i'm gonna make it and it's i and he could he could do it he could get it made so he just did it um and I and I connected on I connected I think I understood that implicitly from seeing it even before I read it, um, anything about it, um, and I think it I I've never I haven't like done a lot of work because I just think I just assume that this is true. It kind of like I think informed a lot of my artistic temperament and what I want from like art, which is so we'll talk about a movie 
we'll talk about a, a little a short film next week that I think kind of does something. I see a lot of Magnolia in aspects of that film, um, in the sense that it's just doing whatever the fuck it wants. It has a thing that it's gonna do, and it's gonna do it regardless of whether or not the story is like obvious enough to like keep people that need an obvious story invested in it. Um, whether or not it's kind of experimental, whether or not it has these long stretches where like something weird is happening and you're just like, how am I supposed to feel here? So there's a lot of places in Magnolia where you're just like, how am I supposed to feel about this? Like, is he, is Earl, played by Jason Robards, like as he's dying of cancer, is he a good guy? Should I be sympathizing with Julianne Moore? What the hell is Tom Cruise's problem? Um, you know, because he's clearly lying to that woman when as she's trying to interview him like you get even before you know that he's he's actually lying to her you get a sense that he's bullshitting her um you know philip seymour hoffman's like the one normal guy but even that he, he like cries occasionally he just kind of like breaks down in tears like is he how attached is he to this person and you have the whole william I would H- say jim is close to being normal jim is normal too but he's also talking to himself that acts as like a narration, but it's clearly not a narration, and you get the sense that he does this all the time. That this is maybe a speech he gives to himself every day but as he gets like into the car. He just takes, he, he came off as somebody just as like real anxiety. For not me. like, and I don't mean like abnormal, like, like a freak show, but he's, he's, I think a different movie strips away these things in this, inside these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what fair, I mean? Fair enough. They make the gym narration. Uh, more directly specific to something happening in the movie and also a voiceover. Not a guy literally talking to himself in a car. Or they just do the David Ayer and have a secondary character like in Harsh Times yeah, yeah, there yeah. for the person to narrate to. Yeah, <laughs> that, would, that would be good. The kid is just driving around the car. <laughs> he's He's been in that car all day long. <laughs> um... Yeah, and it just, it's, it's funny, I, I, I had, I think last week I was more, I was ready to be more effusive in my praise for this, and then I kind of, I started thinking about, what was I thinking about? I was thinking about this book, I was thinking about Paul Oster's New York Trilogy because I'm writing about it, and there's certain stuff in your life that just kind of feels like it was always a part of your existence, and even you, you can say, you can point to the exact moment when it, like, entered your existence. So this, I was, like, 18 or 19, depending on when the DVD came out. Um, and so I know it wasn't there for the first 18 years of my existence or 19 years of my existence, but it feels like it was. I, this just feels kind of like part of, my, part of my life. Like the New York Trilogy? Like the New York Trilogy. Like a couple of other things. Um, and... If I, we like, did, like, a pivotal book, that's... Pivotal books Number for me one? is easy. Um, probably, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, just the amount you mention it. Probably. Um, and it just kind of, it feels ever-present. And, like, I so I can be, like, effusive talking about it, but I can also kind of be, like, I don't know. Like, it's just, it just is for me. And there's not a lot of films. One of the ones we're going to talk about next week kind of is, too, but in a different way. Um a lot of these movies have conditions that we've talked about so far. And like they meet certain criteria and they remind me of certain things and they, they inspired me to think a certain way or blah, blah, blah. Uh, Magnolia just kind of, it just kind of is. It's like part of my skin or like the air or like 
it just it's kind of all encompassing i think it's perfect um i don't think it's too long i think it's like totally mesmerizing even though i said when i was texting i was like i couldn't stop fucking watching this movie the other night and it was like two o'clock in the morning and i was like i have to go to bed it was the night before we did the podcast which is why i think that we were so for my part I was, which people will never hear. That maybe we'll, maybe one day I'll play it. Maybe we'll get famous and we'll release a special, D, special CD or yeah. something, or a cassette. Um, I think this is of that the, episode, fourth, the fourth or fifth time we've had to re-record because of because of that. I think maybe it's not too bad. I think last time, this time was like the least honest. I think the other times we were just like talking forever and just drinking too much. Yeah, and. Um, this time we both seemed like there were other forces at play just kind of like pushing us into um because yeah i don't remember having that conversation either um but yeah so i'm always curious i feel like this is the one paul thomas anderson film that most people don't have a relationship to because it's always considered this kind of other thing and even like punch drug love is a sandler movie it has a has, has a thing attached to it you know what i mean mm-hmm. You know, Hard Eight is the is the first one. I also, people don't talk about Hard Eight at all. Every other one has a thing. Does this? I don't even think this movie's talked about like in Tom Cruise's, like as his best performance, because now it's just like born on the Fourth of July or whatever. No, it's always collateral. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just said that. To, to uh, um. But yeah, what was what was your? Do you have a Magnolia story? I do. Um. So. <laughs> My first real exposure to Magnolia, um, well, besides knowing of it, but the first time I ever saw um, any part of it uh, was um, on the first release, and I can't remember what year it was, or one of the first releases of the game Seen It. Remember, oh, yeah, remember yeah, the yeah, board yeah. game Seen It? Um, yeah, and it Seen It was, was the... It would play scenes of a film and ask you to identify the film or identify a particular performer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first ever scene that I ever saw in a scenic game, which is a game I played quite often, was the uh, the frog scene uh, from Magnolia. And mm-hmm. it asked you to identify the director of oh. the film, which was my question, and I got it, got it correct. Even back then. Um, and I think I was like 17 or 18 when that game it's came out. pretty good. Time. Um, been rocking trivia's for seventeen, 17 years, and so I, I'd seen this in parts. I just never had, you know, as we could see from my list, I, I've never had a really close relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson. Mm-hmm. I appreciate his films, but outside of Phantom Thread and um, Inherent Vice, like Phantom Thread, I, I, I absolutely adore. Yeah, clearly, and um, Inherent Vice, I just find to be a lot of fun. Um, I've never had the closest of relationships to it. I just have always respected him um, as a director. I, I think, though, finally, like, watching this all the way through, I agree with you. And the thing that you texted me was true. Like, it's it's so utterly enthralling, but mm. when you're done with it, it feels like it was, like, ten hours long. Oh, you feel like it's a different day, regardless of when you started it and yeah. when you finished it. Um, and it's, it's just the depth of everything going on. It's, I think so, it's too. The, it's the... the it's, it's, a, it's the... Um, levels of, of intensity in the performances, but also the kind of idea that each of these stories are operating on such different levels, um, but at the same time, there's kind of like a human condition that keeps the narrative flowing, mm-hmm. but the ways in which those flow are so jarring. 
And so it ends up feeling kind of like um, a... I don't want to say a roller coaster because that's such a shitty thing to say, but it ends up feeling at times like like you're kind of like spun around in a circle yeah. a lot. Um, and so I just from from a pure from pure a pure like direction standpoint, I think this is clearly his best um, hmm. because I think I think Phantom Thread can like rest its hat on just a very small group of people, mm-hmm. um, you know, including Paul Thomas Anderson. But this is such a network of things going on. It feels, this movie, for me, it, it's both jointly, like, better than every Robert Altman movie ever was. And doing all the Robert Altman things was yeah. trying to do. But doing them with, like, a real attention to emotion. Mm-hmm. And also, at the same time, doing everything Wes Anderson was trying to do through, like, Moonrise Kingdom. With this kind of, like, weird, effusive... Um, etherealness mm-hmm. at times uh, you know you get the ricky J narration and everything attached to it from the yeah. beginning and then kind of he's not necessarily odd characters but definitely like odd moments and odd uh, affects of emotion and so he's at once kind of doing both these two different things and with a, an extremely talented group of actors but to have those actors who often perform give their performances in really different kind of ways and having them kind of all be consistent Mm -hmm. in the way in which they deliver it makes it really harmonious. It's a really harmonious film. To have, like, Henry Gibson be really held back, but at the time, like, explode when he needs to in his interaction with William H. Macy. And Henry Gibson was kind of always just kind of, was kind of, he's dead now, right? I think he has to be. Kind of always that kind of weirdo. Um, Yeah, he's been dead for, like, 11 years. Um, You know, he's always that weirdo kind of, comedy but he's mm-hmm. not doing that here and having him play so well off of William H. Macy who's not really funny at all in this and sort of thing and, mm-hmm. and, and, and really a depressing character yeah. and to have like Gibson play off that I thought, it's like masterful you know and, and they're both talented actors but they're actors who operate on different levels the um, you know they have the constant energy of, of a cruise kind of like be brought down to like Philip Seymour Hoffman's level and then like you know, Jason Robart, who I assume is like his final performance, and Julianne Moore. I think it was his final um, You know, like like that is a, a sign of somebody who is giving out incredible direction. And it's a, it's just a film that, that is so engaging because there's no misfires on it. There's, there's, there's really nothing that you could see for such a, uh, for a film that, that's so, you know, long. It, it doesn't have those moments that, that feel unnecessary. Even if it's not driving a story forward it, it's it's adding to a depth of a feeling not necessarily maybe to a character but it's adding to this overall thematic narrative mm-hmm. um that plays through the beginning you know that it's a, it's a it, it reads almost like a paper like it, it has a, a stated thesis in its beginning and while it you know pays attention to the plot doesn't necessarily focus in on that but it's always paying tribute to that thesis of mm-hmm. chance and coincidence and is that necessarily coincidence or whatnot um you know it's it's always playing to to its narrative it's um thematic i should say framing mm-hmm. and that's 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 something that is, is rare well because there's you mentioned you mentioned depth and you mentioned emotions um a couple of times and i think all the things you're speaking to is that the, the film is not content to just kind of give you like one aspect of a character's emotional depth or their 
you know, the problems associated with whatever that depth happens to be. It just, like, keeps going down and down and down and down and down. So even when Tom Cruise has restrained himself and is kind of, you know, he's quietly judging um, Gwendolyn and, and stuff like that after she brought up the facts of his, uh, of his biography, um, it's not the same emotion that he was giving, you That's know, right, an right, hour Gwendolyn. ago. I was trying to remember what um, her, the reporter's name was. Yeah, yeah. Is that the Who's same? That? Who is that actress? Uh, I don't have my sheet in front of me, but I. Um, I'll look it up. Yeah, because I, I just recognized her from somewhere, but I couldn't. Remember I feel like she's her one name. of those actresses that you kind of you may have seen in a bunch of stuff, and maybe it's not her, and sometimes it is her. Um, I don't know. It's just not her from. She's not from Science of the Lambs, though, right? I wanted to. See no, that's um, Cassie Lemon. Okay, I just wanted to make sure yeah. that wasn't Cassie Lemon. Um, it's he's giving you a different energy, and I think the the. The beautiful thing about this film is that everyone keeps giving you... Guinevere. Guinevere. Yeah. Aha. I wonder why. What's the reason? Um, Alice Grace. April Grace, I should say. I don't... Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's just somebody you, you've seen in a lot of things. And... Um, so everyone's, everyone's driving this depth... And, you know, it's script stuff, and it's director stuff, and it's, you know, uh, production design stuff, and, and, you know, Amy Mann stuff. Um, But, like, just when you think that you've kind of reached the bottom of, like, whatever a character is supposed to be, they give you more... They, like, uncover, like, new layers of, of, of whatever that character is, and each character kind of gets, like, an ending scene to kind of for that in that the in the in the in the vehicle being the frogs to kind of show that that depth so like William H. May you know quiz kid Donnie Smith with his broken fucking teeth you know now he actually needs oral surgery um saying I have so much love to give but I don't know where to put it um is not just like a cool line and not and I think it's meant to be kind of funny because he's got this broken face now, and he, you know, he, all this other stuff that's happening in his life. Um, but it's also just like an impossibly sad line. Like it, it, a, he's a person that never had anything going for him, nothing to claim as his own, other than like his knowledge and the fact that he got the like coincidences associated with his life. The fact that he got struck by lightning. You know yeah. what I mean? And he has all of these other things inside of himself, but because those things were never valued, um, you know, I saw Roger Ebert say that this was a movie about, like, abusing children, and it's kind of not Roger Ebert. It's just, like, not about that. It's just, like, one of the things that kind of happens to happen to two of the kids in this movie, and I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say they were abused as much as they just were not taken care of. Maybe Quiz with Donnie Smith was abused. Um... But it's that thing, it's the unexplored, the unexplored depths of these people. Paul Thomas Anderson's kind of not exploring, like, how they get out of it. He's almost exploring how they become aware of, of their depth. And then, the, I think the beautiful thing about this movie is that it's not resolved. You know what I mean? Like, the rain of frogs happen and things stop. And they take a breath. But they're not, like fixed mm. you know what i mean he's you know melora walters is still gonna have trauma for the rest of her life from whatever like her dad jimmy gators did to him and then that relationship between um 
Sam and his dad is not going to be is not resolved because he went into his room and said you have to start you have to be nicer to me. Um, I think Luis Guzman goes on to really great things. Oh, I think he I think he parlays this appearance on what you kids know, and he's the one takes that it all the way. It. He's the one that kind of makes it. Yeah, him and Ricky. Rick, well, Ricky J. I think sees something in him because he's got his his uh, Masonic ring there. They keep they keep Clark Gregg yeah. on board too. <laughs> yeah, Clark Gregg, Ricky J. and Luis Guzman going to make another TV show that the Freemasons are kind of underneath and kind of dictating the terms of. What lies beneath? Yeah, that's it. That's what it is. They make the, TV the game show. show. <laughs> um, but yeah, and what do you, one interesting thing. What do you think is um, during this period of time? What do you think Tom Paul Thomas Anderson's interest is in having Alfred Molina just appear for a very short amount of time? I think he had a bunch of. I think he has a, just had his people. I think he had his people, and then he was just trying to find stuff for his people to do. So I think what's yeah. one of the things, one of the reasons this movie's three hours long, is because I suppose that Solomon scene isn't really like super necessary or like all the lead up Donnie stuff like to get the, a real sense of well that doesn't have to be somebody like good that scene doesn't have to be amazing but it fucking is amazing yeah and you for like I forget I've seen this movie so many times and I always forget that you know Alfred Molina is Solomon and Solomon yelling at Donnie is just the fucking best and he's so right and that guy just standing there behind him being like no need for dental surgery how much? Oh, how much do braces cost? He's like, I don't know, five thousand dollars. I know. So it's like, it's it's. Paul Thomas Anderson has this like ability to kind of get these this great stuff. It doesn't seem necessary, but it just adds value. It just adds so much value to the movie and kind of keeps you invested in it. Um, I mean, just like some fun facts for me. This is one of the first. So I said it was double this DVD. I don't really like the making of documentaries. I watched this whole making of documentary a bunch of times. I thought it was like hilarious in a way that Orlando Jones' presence in this got reduced to just being the back of a guy in a jacket. Um, <laughs> when he was like, you know, he had actual stuff. Did you ever see like his performances in it? Yeah, it's just Orlando Jones at the time oh, okay. when Orlando Jones kind of meant something to the culture. Um, this is the first shooting script I ever bought. I used to have a lot of shooting scripts. And this is the first one I ever got. It was hardcover. Um, because I just kind of needed to see. I needed to see what was on the page versus what was just kind of made up. Because everything feels so weirdly extemporaneous. Like, even some of the Tom Cruise stuff that he's saying in his, um, you know, little speech doesn't sound... It doesn't always make a ton of sense. And it doesn't... Like, he's not finishing thoughts. And it seems like he's just kind of, uh, you know improvising a lot of those lines it seems like there's it seemed when I first watched this there's a lot of improvisation and it's not he just he just wrote it it's just you know Paul Thomas Anderson just wrote this huge fucking script and you know they all just acted it so um yeah I don't know it's just kind of it's it's one of those tentpole like amazing things and we only I don't even want to know what happens to the rest of this list Mario things are gonna get wild we're going in single digits. Yep. It's going to be gonna be insane. Crazy. Crazy. If, if you want to be what? We already did it. Oh, no. Should I leave the drunk version? Or no, I think. But... <laughs> and I, I, it would be kind of hilarious. <laughs> Should we? Our speech just slows down. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, if you 
we're gonna gonna go back to a week for for that clothes. Do you think we talked politics? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't remember. Who knows? You will find if it, out. In if a it's second. if it's that useless, <laughs> Rob yeah. will do it really quickly. Yeah. If you want to remember things, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Yeah, or you can go to uh, send us a message at pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com, or go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our Pivotal Film list and a list of the beers that we drank and how to subscribe and some lists and things. We're getting close to the end of the year, so we're going to be putting up a new list soon of our best of the year, our top oh, tens. Right. Um, I think we'll do that episode. No, no, put, well, I, I always make a list to, to put up on the website so we oh, can see it, the lists. Uh, so we'll be doing that. That should be... I think I penciled that in for end of January. Yeah. We could probably do it. Since most of this... Since... We just gotta... We, we have to stop at some point. Well, yeah. It's just like we said. Um, the last movie that's really eligible is, is One Day in... Yeah, One Day in... I just think the pro- We kind of talked off air about this a little bit. I think one of the problems we may run into is that studios may just start dumping shit. And then we might just have, like... A, stuff that we thought was going to be gone. They're just going to be like, ah, here you go. Here's just... Here's some movies. Yeah, because what 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 else are they going to do? I mean, if it, if it releases before December thirty first, we'll count it. If it doesn't, it goes into twenty twenty one. So twenty twenty one might be a strong year. Yeah, I mean, those some of those movies may have won Oscars yeah. by the time, but they'll be included in our. But some movies that were eligible for last year's Oscars are eligible for our year, our movie thing this year. That's true. One of the movies I'm sad is not eligible for us because it was out some places is Clemency. Because I really like Clemency. You know, but fuck it. We didn't see it. Just put it on there. But it was out for months. No, barely. It was, it was released in late December. I think it was released in late November. Listen, do you really think somebody's going to come, like, knock on the Pivotal I Film just wanted, Tower no, door? No, no, no. But I just want it to be, I want it to feel uh, authentic for myself. Okay, that's And fine. I know, we were waiting for it for a long time. And I know that it was out but, in like November and places. We never it just talked never about. Got... It. We never talked. So I, I would say, how about this? Maybe don't give it its nominations. But if you feel like it ends up in like a top, making your top ten, mm. then put it there. Interesting. Interesting. You know, there is precedent for this. The New Yorker, like, didn't New Yorker? I think released a list today, today, yesterday. Doesn't matter. Of like their top favorite books that they read this year and like some of them were new but some of them were old also i love the fact that npr put like their top books of the year list like and it's 194 books and ant kind was not on it and i was like there's no way that's insane any of these books were that good and look at anyways look at the top 10 so far of 2020 for some like vanity fair has like freaky at number eight really yeah we gotta get out of this business mario this, this shit's going crazy Alright, um, so yeah, uh, drink, see movies, drink beers, and uh, not too many though. Yeah. Not too many, and get good sleep, and eat properly if you're gonna drink. Keep your Water. fucking masks on, and we'll talk to you next week.